0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode on Amplify. I am in conversation today with Dr. Sian Shiros. She is an assistant professor at the Fashion Institute of Technology. She's a research scientist at Columbia University, and she's the co-founder and chief science officer at Wear Wu is a biotech company creating biodegradable textile fibers and she's got a really long very impressive resume and I've got lots and lots of questions for her but I'm going to try and keep it to the topic of today which is focusing on plastics and circular economy and whether or not plastics can be recycled. for joining us today Fian, I really appreciate it thanks for having me it's a great podcast so it's exciting to get to chat about this topic great I'm so happy to have you here you know let's just talk about without getting too much into the, the long and extensive history of how plastics came to be could you maybe just talk about what the turning point was for plastic to have permeated our lives to the extent that it has today
1: so I mean We'll do the quick timeline, the mm-hmm. really quick cliff notes timeline. Like when you walk through the Natural History Museum and it's the <laughs> billions of years of evolution and snapshots. But yeah. if we go back to like 1869, you know, all materials came from nature, minerals, you know, toothbrushes were made of ivory, piano keys were made of ivory, combs were made of silver. And so... I think the first synthetic polymer was around 1869, and there was a prize of $10,000, which you can imagine in 1869 was a ton of money, mm-hmm. to have a replacement for ivory. So if you wanted to play billiards, it was ivory. And so, you know, things were for the very rich, right? Just basic things that we consider basic items were for the very rich. And that was that came up with uh, working with cellulose and to make a kind of celluloid, the first chemistry. And that was really revolutionary, right? Because and then plastic started being heralded as like we can save the you know when we if we fast forward to the end of the nineteenth century, Leo Bakelite was a chemist searching for alternatives to a lot of the natural resources. And one big issue was that insul- electricity was becoming really big. So shellac was used to coat electrical lines, but shellac came from the lac beetle, came from insects. So you right. needed you know a gazillion beetles to be processed and so i mean the explosion of plastic was like an explosion of the human enterprise to some degrees i don't mean a human enterprise in this glorious way but like the human enterprise of dominating the mm-hmm. earth and permeating our material flows with non-degradable and toxic materials so he made this kind of giant steampunk egg which like not Humbly named the Bakelizer, and he <laughs> took the the residues from kerosene, and you know he realized that in, in burning some of these fuels there was residue left over, and he was able to make this amber colored material. He played with temperature, pressure in his house. It was it was this crazy looking thing, and it was bakelite, and and that was this huge breakthrough because now things that could be molded, it could be shaped. It was you know, it was really, really revolutionary. It was not only a good insulator, but it was durable. It was resistant. It was really well-suited for mass production. And it was kind of the material of a thousand uses. Well, gosh, did we not know the foreshadowing, the material of a thousand uses, but really now humans were not limited by the constraints of nature. Now we know how that turned out, but we could, create, you know, It and it was kind of heralded as really good for the environment because you're not using elephant tusks and tortoise shells and and things. So that then World War during World War II, plastic production just skyrocketed. So you know, nylon was invented in 1935 as a synthetic silk, and this was the big kind of production. Helmet, plexiglass, it really, really. When, but I think what you're, I'm gonna see where we're going. But I think what you're asking about is when did single use plastic? How did it get into yes. everything?
0: Yes, because I know that, like, I mean, when you look at, like, you rightly said, when you look at plastics, it's it's in it's in our clothes, it's in our toothbrushes, toothpaste, also possibly, and it's, it's just toothpaste. It, it is in our toothpaste, right? Okay, so there's it's in our fertilizer. Okay,
1: for, wow. so you know you're eating for every calorie of you know, conventional oats, if you're in your oatmeal, you're having, it's nine calories of oil. Wow. Industrial fertilizer. It's in our pesticides. It's in our dyes. It is everywhere. Vinyl chloride mm-hmm. were, was a propellant for hairspray. It's in everything. So I guess how yeah. did it get there?
0: Yeah. And and I actually, I mean, it's crazy for me to think that because I read this report in the Guardian as well that said that there was this woman, she gave birth and there was microplastics found in her placenta. I don't know if you read that but that to me was just just completely shocking that it is is literally everywhere there's no escaping it but but yeah if you could just talk about how sort of when and how single-use plastics came to be this omnipresent
1: yeah so i mean as much as we know this is happening the plastics in the human placenta i mean it's been found in gastrointestinal tracts of marine animals it moves to the food web but something about um and we know that plasticizers have been affecting human health, right? It's, it's all connected. But seeing microplastics in a placenta, I mean, the placenta forms over some months. So this isn't kind of years of bioaccumulation. That I think was, and it was really colored plastics from our really single use, just single disposable goods. That was really, really shocking. Well, interestingly, I mean, after World War two, it kind of became the celebration of convenience. And there was a video made in 1972 by plastics industry that was just like, we are unleashed, you know, we are not confined by these bounds, we can have these conveniences. And the plastic revolution kind of just started getting started. But after post-war thinking, people actually had to be taught to dispose of things, right? I mean, you can think about, it's not so far back, if I think of my parents who were born in the 40s, 1940, even growing up, I mean, you didn't waste a thing. You you didn't waste anything. Water was reused. You know, there was, there was gray water. There was just, everything got reused. And especially coming out of, you know, wartime thinking, people had to be taught. So they were very effectively steered towards single use plastic by plastic lobbyists in the plastic industry. And there was a cover of Time Magazine in 1962. And this was like, oddly because plastic pollution and waste colonialism is so oppressive and climate change is so disproportionately affects women and BIPOC communities and children and the elderly. But it was heralded as this convenience for women in the States, at least. You know, Time Magazine has all these housewives throwing their plastic cutlery in the Mm -hmm. air with their leg in the air. Just just can't believe how convenient their life is and Mm -hmm. all this time they're freed up for and that came a lot with you know milk was delivered in glasses so it was like no that's not sanitary you know we're we're this is this is not sophisticated we need to move forward and so pretty much there was this kind of huge celebration of all the modern conveniences and plastic just came in every ad it was a huge advertising push but now the rest of the history kind of comes like okay well the waste started appearing soon after that so like the consequences of this disposable material culture didn't take long to be obvious And that kind of unblemished joy of plastics didn't last. So by the 1960s, litter was everywhere. You know, plastic debris was first observed in the oceans in the 1960s. Rachel Carson had her book, Silent Spring, in 1962, exposing the dangers of chemical pesticides, which are also petrochemical-derived. There was a major oil spill. Oil is the building blocks of plastic off the coast in 1969. Okay, so what, what happened? Right now, plastics are getting their bad reputation. So... The plastic industry comes in with another campaign. And, and the, this campaign was, you, I don't know if you guys remember, you're probably too young, but aside from it's like obvious racism, there was an Italian actor that was cast as a Native American paddling down the river with a single tear in his eye. You know, People start pollution, people can stop it. And here was the real, real turning point where the onus was put on individuals. And that is not to say individuals are not responsible, but if you have a tap of plastic by plastic companies and petrochemicals and lobbyists flowing, and then the onus is put on the, you can't turn off the tap, but the onus is to clean up the flood of plastic. Yeah. That was where it really, it it shifted. And okay, so so it puts the onus on consumers and in many cases, municipalities to pay for the disposal of the waste that they created. And to some degree, that's true. You, you you have this thing, where does it go? But that implies there's something to do with these materials. There's a mm-hmm. system that can handle these materials. These materials can be recycled. And we can go back and forth. And, and this is where kind of recycling and the myth of recycling comes in. That's really kind of the rest of the history is this back and forth of, wait a minute, the, the plastic companies would say this, this works. And then it would like very obviously not work. And people mm. would say, Hey. And so they'd come in with something else. And more plastic has been created in the last 10 years than in the history of plastic. Wow. I mean, plastic plastic production is expected to double by 2030, what's nine years from now. Yeah. So so virgin plastic production from fossil fuels.
0: I really like the part where you said how the owner shifted onto individuals. you know, you do have like this very clear link between plastic and the fossil fuel industry and just how at the, the unprecedented rate at which they're just churning out this material and perpetuating this disposability and throwaway culture. And then they're like, well, if people reduce their individual consumption, then we wouldn't be in this situation. And i recently came across this report as well that said that it was actually bp the fossil um, the oil and gas company that came up with the term carbon footprint so before the carbon footprint and what your own carbon footprint was wasn't a concept but bp came up with it in an in an attempt to sort of you know again shift the onus but also talk about you know how can a person reduce their individual consumption and they assigned this term carbon footprint which is just so mainstream or has been so mainstream it hasn't been criticized so much in environmental conversations
1: i mean just to back up with that the companies are not suggesting we consume less they're suggesting it's fine to consume because as long as you recycle and yeah. this is where the really like criminal myth of recycling comes in because they they plastic companies strongly promoted recycling fully knowing it wouldn't work because if that allows you to make more virgin materials and I think it's 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 even more kind of, it's even darker than saying like, oh, well, you know, use less. I mean, the, the idea is you're fine to use things because it's recyclable, except it's not. And this is where we have to, like, this is where you get into serious, serious issues of environmental racism and social justice, Where where's the end of the line? You know, materials made in the global South for high GDP countries in the Global North that land back in the Global South. And I, I, I think that's, that's a whole other thread we can talk about, but when it's promised that something can be recycled or reused and it can't, what happens to it? And what happens, where's the awareness of, I've put this in a bin, so it's fine, when we see, clearly see piles and piles of plastic in the Global South, piles and piles of clothing, piles and piles of e-waste sent from the North, that's not only dramatically shifting the 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 already imbalanced effect of climate and toxicity and inequity but it's it's just it's it's making people very 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 sick so i think that's also i think you know what this comes to is is looking at the full circle of where things come from and where they end up and that carbon footprint is is true it's like you know when you look at your i think using less plastic and lowering your carbon footprint, right? Less flights, riding your bicycle, eating more vegetables. These are all wonderful things. You know, using less single-use plastic is, is, a, is a very important thing to do, but it doesn't get at the root of the problem. And it is also very much catered for people who have those choices to mm-hmm. say, I'm, I have a really nice bicycle and I have a really nice car, which should I take today? And that's actually a very small segment of society, Yeah, you know? So, you know, we can talk more about that, too. But I think that's a little bit with some of these plastic initiatives, which are kind of that are important for a niche group, but it misses the mark in terms of the global picture.
0: Yeah. And so how just how much of plastic is currently recycled? And why is plastic so hard to recycle? I have to
1: check the numbers. I think it's something like 9% in the States. Mm -hmm. Denmark, it's about 95%. But there's something we need to keep in mind. We have to define recycling. Yes. And I would say that ultimately plastic is not recyclable at all. But but this is with a caveat. So everything has to be in context. So like if you define recycling as taking something, breaking it back down, and turning it back into the same thing, then plastics cannot be recycled. Okay. They can be downcycled. Because every time you do that, you have the, the polymers, plastics are... Synthetic polymers from coal, oil, natural gas, and chemicals. They're long chains of polymers. And when you do that process of breaking them down, they don't become the same thing. So glass, recyclable, infinitely recyclable. You, you, you melt it back down, you cast it again. Now there's a lot of energy to, to make glass because mm-hmm. it comes from sand and there's processing. There's, you can imagine you have to put a lot of heat to make sand into glass. But metal cans the same. Metal cans, they don't lose their integrity. A metal can can be a metal. That's a truly circular recycling economy. An aluminum can, a glass. Papers can be recycled like, like cardboard, paper, but about five times. You know, each time the fibers get a little bit weaker. Right. And so it's still paper. It can serve the same purpose. It's the same thing. But after a certain number of processes, just the chemicals used, it just makes, the, it, makes it a weaker material. And at some point it, it has to be downcycled. Okay. Plastic from the get-go, by that definition, plastic cannot be recycled. It can be turned into something else. And so what's critically important when we think about a circular economy is that petrochemical-based plastics at this stage in our technology do not fit into a circular economy at all. You, if you have a linear economy, fossil fuel extraction, toxic chemical processing, transportation, landfill, incineration, plastic pollution, that's the line. If mm-hmm. you take that plastic bottle and make it into a pair of yoga pants, okay, great. You've added a loop to that line,
0: mm-hmm. but it's
1: not a circular economy. Right. If as many loops, listen, adding that loop is great, but it still sheds microplastics. It still has a lot of the same issues. So I think you have to be really careful that you know the perfect is the enemy of the good. Yeah. Certainly, it's better for a plastic bottle to become yoga pants, and get used, but it's not. It's not going to become yoga pants again. It, it may yeah. become some filler material. Maybe you can get another life. But the issue about recycling plastic from the beginning is that it's it's really nearly impossible it, in terms of a plastic bottle becoming, you know, these single use plastics becoming another single use item. Recycling plastics, it's, it's expensive. It's time consuming. It's chemically intensive. Sorting plastic is generally infeasible, especially with mixed plastics. Plastic degrades every time you use it. So, you know, a plastic bottle can can become a fleece or a pair of yoga pants, but, and the oil and plastics company have always known this. Wow. If you find the documents, you know, that there's been a lot of, there's been really interesting, NPR did this really great episode on it. And it's, it's Mm -hmm. like, you find the documents from the plastic lobbyists, they've always known it and they advertise their way around it. And in fact, knowing full well that recycling wouldn't work they offered it as a solution and spent $50 million a year on these expensive recycling campaigns and these community, you know, community get togethers and here, put it, you know, recycling, recycling, give a hoot, don't pollute all this that we've seen. And it was never intended to work. Yeah. It was intended to get people to buy more plastic. Yeah. So that worked.
0: Yeah. You know, when you talk about, recycling plastic and then when you see on some pieces or like on some items you have little three three arrows right which is like the very common sign of something that can be recycled or should be recycled or is already recycled what what does that mean and what does that stand for because if plastic cannot be recycled then why is it there
1: <laughs> yeah so the recycling symbol that's a thing the recycling symbol the arrow means nothing it's a logo Okay. It does not mean it can be recycled. The number inside those three, the triangle of arrows, tells you what type of plastic it is. And then given your municipality, your area, it may or may not be recyclable, which for the purpose of clarity, we'll say downcyclable, right? Because we can't right. we can't really ever recycle it. So, but of course, it looks really compelling. Like it's, it's, it looks this, it looks like a stamp of recycling. And how that happened was really interesting. This was this kind of like environmentalist, plastic lobbyist, environmentalist, plastic Mm -hmm. lobbyist, this history of back and forth. And interestingly enough, that logo came out of the design competition at the first Earth Day in 1970. So, you know, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, this growing environmental movement. And so the plastics company actually launched this design competition. And this young guy, Gary Anderson, he he was studying in this area and he tried in the idea of recycling. He tried to like symbolize nature's material and energy cycling. And Mm -hmm. so he was inspired by that and created this logo. So he won the competition received $2,500 for this logo. The host of the event was the container corporation of America. Mm. And they implemented their recycling. They implemented the symbol on their recyclable products, downcyclable, recyclable products. So they implemented that symbol and began lobbying other countries' companies to do the same. And they were so successful and this was a young guy who'd won a design competition that the logo became public domain, wasn't protected as his, and then it could be put on anything. It could no longer be it didn't could no longer be trademarked and that was the beginning of the end for the symbol having any meaning. So at first it was commissioned by a company that was recycling plastics. So beverage containers, soda bottles, it was just kind of put on everything. And then inside, they put the number of the plastic. So number five plastic is polypropylene. Number one and two are high and low density polyethylene, all made from monomers derived from petrochemicals. So in the 80s, that switched, that kind of stamp got put to everything. And then companies were like, people were finding in the recycling bins, which was just supposed to be glass, metal, and paper. All of a sudden, like everything's in these recycling bins like milk cartons all things that can't be recycled Mm -hmm. and it's like what's happening why are suddenly people putting it in there that was in the 80s in the 90s the recycling got open to two types of plastic which was beverage container and soda bottles but that was the kind of beginning of like you see these recycling bins that are just full of everything that can't be recycled at all it doesn't it's never meant that this thing could be recycled it was just basically A logo from a young designer that got hijacked by the plastic industry to support the recycling campaign. It just tells you what the plastic is made of.
0: Let's talk about what happens to the rest in terms of where it goes as well, right? Because coming from a country like India, where you do see a lot of landfills, a lot of plastic pollution, a lot of it is not ours. So, global South countries have always been this on the receiving end of environmental dumping practices that take place and it's a very well known fact that countries in the EU, the UK, the US often export tons and tons of plastic waste either in the form of clothing or in the form of e-waste to countries in the global south and I know that until very recently, until I think 2018, China was a huge importer of all of this waste. And then when China said, well, we're not gonna have any more of it, and they sort of had a very strict policy in place, this waste was dispersed to other countries in the Southeast Asian geography. So it was Indonesia, Malaysia, India, et cetera. And so can you talk a little bit more about environmental dumping practices and, and specifically waste colonialism?
1: Yeah, so waste colonialism is a term that was first formally coined, I believe, in 1989. And that was at the United Nations Environmental Program, the the Basel Convention. And it was coined by African nations. So there was a working group of African nations, and it specifically referred to their concerns that they articulated about the disposal of hazardous waste by high GDP countries in the global north into low GDP countries, largely in the global south. So when we talk about plastic pollution, when they say, "Oh, you know, five countries, Asian, there are five different Asian countries—China, uh, Philippines, Thailand—are responsible for the, you know, 50% of the the marine plastic pollution," those are the countries where Europe and the United States have shipped their plastic. So you know, to say it's coming from those countries, it's. Is, is a bit, yeah, sure, it's coming from those countries at one stage, but if you follow it up the flow, it's coming from the U.S., it's coming from Global North, high GDP countries. You know, waste colonialism, it's called colonialism because a linear economy, which has been our dominant production model since the Industrial Revolution, and especially since the influx of plastics in the 1930s, it assumes land access. It assumes I can send, you know, this can be sent to your land, and that's colonialism. So, from extraction of the raw materials, from the petrochemicals used, as we talked about for fertilizers, pesticides, the same thing, you know, in the fashion industry, the Aral Sea, one of one that was once in the 80s one of the four largest lakes seas in the world, is like desiccated. It's all but empty, to, because lines were diverted to irrigate for cotton right? So clothes are not made in the U.S. They're made somewhere else. So it's using land and resources. It's assumed access to land and resources for settler or goals from high GDP countries. And so fundamentally, this was really the thing that needs to be addressed. You know, you you can talk about not using that straw. I mean, I have a lot of, you know, in, the, in my small bubble, you know, working in this area and sort of you know teaching in this area I find sometimes colleagues and friends are like, you know I I know it's plastic but and I'm like, listen that's that's your one straw yes, try not to use it sure that's not the that's not going to get to the bottom of the problem mm-hmm. it's it's the imbalanced infrastructure and so something that's really critical is that we need to go beyond a simple material substitution at the consumer end and examine and to my viewpoint dismantle the systems that make their use inevitable so if you're making something single use and your your business is based on single use of you know virgin plastic you have assumed land access it is a colonial mindset you have assumed that this is going to go somewhere and you have access to that land and that water and land meaning kind of all the environmental spheres and, and all the related things kind of capital land max liberon would call that land with a capital L, right? Mm-hmm. So and so I think that you know turning off the tap and then how do you turn off the tap? And it's where do you find that accountability is is really the big issue. Um, but it's the same in Accra, you know, the textile market, the things that get shipped there. There's also tons in a and also in Ghana, it's a, it's a huge dumping site for electronic waste. And it's a lot of it, a lot of it is, you know, secondhand, it goes in there as secondhand electronics, but it falls through the cracks of infrastructure. And it's extremely toxic. It's extremely toxic. You've got kids working there. It's burning tires and wires and air conditioners. It's super dangerous. You've got kids, you know, severe health issues early on. And then some of the older boys that work there, cases of cancer. And you know, ultimately it's it's a linear economy which is rooted in colonialism because it's rooted in access. And now you're saying, okay, that land access also is like, well, there's not the municipality to deal with it as there is maybe in the global north. And a lot of those incineration facilities, and then, and then, you know, maybe countries from the global north go in and say, well, we're gonna put in a a waste management facility. That's still, that's extremely colonial. That's assuming mm-hmm. access that I'm, even if the intention is now good to clean up a mess, it assumes land access. And I think that it, it doesn't, there, there's no, you were not given permission to go there. You were not consulted with the, local, the, the people that live there and have mined the land. And that goes back, you know, to the beginnings of like origins of colonialism where even well-intended missions are still colonial, and they're still creating these really huge systemic imbalances with human health, social justice, access to education, access to water. So So, solutions kind of, I think, really have to come, you know, it's not your, it's not, you know, the lady in Brooklyn's single plastic straw use because our kids, like, that's not the problem. Mm. I mean, sure, that helps. And that kind of awareness helps. But if what we need is a growing awareness of the the systemic origin of what creates plastic pollution as a symptom of waste colonialism and a linear economy.
0: A lot of the countries in the global north that export this waste to the global south, you know, what what is what is the thinking, what is the rationale behind doing so? Because of course, a lot of countries in the global south do not necessarily have the infrastructure or the finances that are available to set up that kind of infrastructure. They may not even have. The institutions that are necessary to enforce like strict environmental regulations or to control that, because you know, China does have that, India by comparison doesn't, for instance, to do something as what China did in 2018. So, just talking or just you know, getting to know a little bit more about that rationale and just the fact that it assumes land access is really interesting because otherwise, why would you be exporting all of these like this millions of tons of waste over there when you know that they actually cannot? upcycle or downcycle or recycle it in any which way or form
1: the global linear economy is is rooted and built on colonial systems with and environmental racism you can make a single use product and and assume land access and you're done right you're Mm. you're you're a corporation you're a plastic lobbyist and i i think that you know at the individual level people just are not tracing things and they're not there's a missing connection connecting the dots and it's hard to connect the dots because you're flooded with all this information that you know Plastic Free July is gonna save the turtles. And so, well, yeah, sure, I mean, I think, I mean, another thing to really talk about, which we, we didn't talk about is that that material substitution also, it's it's rooted in privilege. It It, it assumes that you have the resources, the income, the facilities, the infrastructure, to simply take a mason jar or a reusable mm-hmm. coffee cup instead of stopping. It's for somebody who's like, it's for people who have enough creature comforts and and are, have enough privilege that it's a habit. I'm going to put a reusable cup in my bag and my market bag and I, I, my, my hands are clean and I lowered my impact. But it, it doesn't consider the fact that you know, and this isn't just the Global South, this is New York City, this is the Bronx, this is the Brooklyn, this is Brooklyn, this is this is all over the food deserts that are created by this linear economy and these polluting infrastructures. So you live in a food desert in the Bronx, what, are your, what is your alternative to that single-use plastic? The food you get is going to be processed, largely, pro- the food that's available is going to come in single-use packaging. So, who is it serving a, what kind of impact within that niche group that has the you know can bring their bamboo cutlery and a reusable straw But again, it's missing the mark for what's causing the toxicity and the injustices of plastic pollution. And that's not just limited to the global south. that's that's all over. And this idea that you know plastic is it's it's these I think people get very comfortable they want an answer, right? What's the lowest impact material? what's the plastics are bad and it's like well you know you think of a a differently abled person a bendable plastic straw is amazing for them that's an Mm amazing like that's a great thing there's medical reasons there's you have to kind of put things in context
0: yeah absolutely and framing is so important when we talk about reducing plastic use and plastic consumption because just in general When people say, or when there are initiatives such as Plastic Free July, which is what I was sort of wanted to talk about next, we talk a lot about how an individual can reduce their plastic consumption without necessarily understanding that that in itself is a function of privilege, whether or not you can make a swap between a plastic straw or sorry, swap from a plastic straw to a bamboo one or a metal one is a function of privilege. And of course, if you are differently abled, then perhaps It is important for you to be able to access these items and what what are your opinions then on initiatives like plastic free july again plastic
1: free july is effective in places where alternatives exist alternatives to single-use plastic are exist reusables are readily available and can be normalized as such Mm -hmm. So, so you know in a community where you have the resources to have a reusable alternative they're very very effective and those are high consuming areas so it's not that it's ineffective but i think you know it's a little bit it's it's to some degree if you really want to get at the root of plastic pollution at large and all the systemic injustices and pollution and toxicities that result you know there's something to be said there now you have to have really comprehensive conversations and legislation and action about plastics so you know sustainable reform across state governments Making packaging companies, right, accountable for where their waste goes. So looking at I mean, there's groups that are looking at coca-cola and 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 finding the biggest polluters, there's another challenge with that, which is by the time you know plastic breaks down to smaller and smaller bits where they and along the way, they accumulate persistent organic pollutants and increase toxicity. So they become smaller and smaller where the toxins, other toxins in the environment, accumulate, dioxins, plasticizers are, are released. So by the time it gets to a stage where people are kind of finding them and researchers are, are finding them, there's too small to trace back. They're bits of microplastics, but that's something that, you know, accountability really matters. The other issue is assumed land access for fracking, right? A lot of these are in, in you know, in indigenous areas, especially in North America, which, okay, all of North America is indigenous land unceded, yeah. most of it is unceded indigenous land. But there's areas where, you know, you're you're pulling out, you're pulling fossil fuels there with little regard for the land, no regard for the land relations. And so, you know, plastic has very real impacts on humans across its lifespan, from the fracking of raw materials to its disposal in landfills or incinerators. And so, you know, another thing that misses the mark is like, oh, you know, Vegan leather, which is synthetic plastic, and it's it's a textile like polyester, which is, comes from fossil fuels, plastic, coated with, for instance, polyvinyl chloride (PVC) or polyurethane. When that is incinerated, which a lot of plastic that goes and textiles that get sent to the global south, there's no, you know, landfill. At some point, you burn it, and then it releases all the toxic chemicals like vinyl chloride monomers, which you know have huge toxicities, cancer-causing effects. So, I mean, I, this, we kind of got away from plastic free July, but, you know, I have to say, I feel a wave of pride. If we have a, my son goes to order a milkshake and he says, no straw or lid please. And, you know, kind of <laughs> thinks about it at 10 years old, I don't know, pride, but I'm happy that it's a mindfulness and it's a consciousness that's necessary to take those actions. So I think having a, at the state and then ultimately federal government level, but the state level is easier to act on Legislation, you know, any legislation that works against assumed land access. Right. Legislation on how much packaging can be used by companies like Amazon and other large companies, you know, and fines, right? If you use certain plastics that are harder to recycle, you, you get fined. There has to be an economic consequence for people at the at the tap right at the at the faucet that for that t- faucet to turn off mm. there has there has to be a penalty for letting the faucet run right and then maybe cleaning up i mean if you had your kitchen overflowing with water, you'd go turn off the tap you wouldn't just have you know pull kids out of school to mop the floor. <laughs>
0: Essentially, I mean, let's let's reduce our individual water consumption
1: yeah or like don't you use any water because all that water water right stop don't don't drink that cup of water it's all flowing out of the tap and you can't go to school and you have to clean it up obviously a simplified some kind you know maybe not a great metaphor but it you know the
0: system the system has to change yeah I think I guess my final question would be just why do you think and all the years of work that you've done on this that there is something more evocative and compelling about you know a, a, a straw that is suffocating a turtle for instance than talking about landfills or, or piles of garbage that's just collecting in a in a in a place you know wh- why is it that we can feel more or that we are moved more to act when we are confronted with the former As opposed to the latter?
1: Well, I think it's twofold. I think probably much more than twofold, but for for simplicity, I mean, I think the images and the narrative around plastic pollution is straightforward, compelling. It it gets a awe, or like if you, you feel, you know, it and it also, so that's one part. It's just like, okay, my this is what's where my plastic is going. This is what's happening to a creature. It's a simple story, but it also Kind of works with the system of saying like if you just recycle this it would be okay whereas mm. the bigger picture one i think people kind of unfortunately i mean there's this idea of echo anxiety right and this is like yeah echo anxiety is is for for you know it's like a white privilege thing i mean people <laughs> who are trying to meet basic needs they have a lot of anxiety and that yeah. echo anxiety is rooted in the fact that there's no access to clean water or You know, it's it's different than this kind of like, should I use bamboo or plastic or Hmm. metal, these issues? But I think the big issue is it makes us confront our concept of a way and our responsibility and the big picture responsibility. So people say, but I recycle. Their hands are wiped clean. They've done my part. Is it recycled? How? Where? By who? Is it actually incinerated or is it in the landfill? And I think that addressing the end of life is... You know, people are steered away from from those images because it doesn't suit the bigger. I mean, I think it's it's the the excess and consumption and that model. So, giving you another thing that you can buy that prevents a turtle from being choked by a plastic bag fits within the consumer model and fits mm-hmm. within this model. Whereas, looking at the system and saying your clothes, your phone, the, you know, how many, I, when I talk to my students, I'm like, how many iPhones do you have in a drawer somewhere in your house, right? Where do they go? I think confronting the, the end of life and the consequences of, and I don't want to say the consequences of just your purchase, but the consequences of the system that creates planned obsolescence, an iPhone that has to be updated every two years. Confronting that is, getting that education is, is really, your, there's an influx of information from other interests that kind of keep you from that so the turtle is a little bit safe everyone can get their head around it you can go say oh but this straw is biodegradable plastic which you know corn pla sure if you have industrial facility with heat and pressure that those bioplastics will break down so it's another industry mm. um, so i think some of it is breaking away from that um, and really understanding the pieces at work. So this is an area where we're seeing a really wonderful growing community educating, I think, in this area. I'm mm-hmm. constantly inspired by the different perspectives. Ultimately, I think, you know, I am hopeful that we can we can address the roots of the problem with enough mm-hmm. collaboration across different groups and in, in industry and state and legislation. And the, the takeaway from this should not be that your actions don't matter. It's okay to use such trial. It should be <laughs> that be effective with your actions write to your legislators engage in different petitions you know kind of find systemic ways to address the problem and 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 i think be very mindful about you know are the actions involved assuming access to land and environment yeah um, at the root of the problem
0: i mean i think that's such a great point as well to end on because i always think that you know we don't just have to be conscious consumers we actually Being a conscious consumer just means being an active citizen, you know, so just understanding that your individual behavior or choices are sort of situated in a wider context. And I think that that's just so important to recognize. But yeah, thank you so much for taking time out for this. And yeah, and and thank you so much for being here.